0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 20. Yes, episode 20 of You Don't Know Jack. I am your host, Sarah Demio, with everything you need to know in the career of the great Jack Nicholson. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. But I am back again, just like always, working on a more consistent schedule so that I don't have to be taking these intermittent hiatuses. So I do want to say thank you for coming back and tuning in again. All for our love for Jack. We are currently in 1975, which for Jack is a landmark year in his career in movies. Last episode, we talked about The Who's rock opera Tommy, where Jack appears for one scene as the doctor, a role that he wasn't originally tapped to play, but came into as a last-minute replacement and completed his role in 18 hours. Today, we move on to Jack's second feature of 1975, a starring role in a much less commercial, dramatic art film, Michelangelo Antonioni's The Passenger, also known by its Italian title, Professione Reporter. So before I get into it, I want you to think back a few episodes to our review of Chinatown. My guest, Melissa Torriero, and I talked for a little bit about how Chinatown falls into the neo-noir category. The Passenger also falls into the neo-noir category, though it is set in present day, which is the early to mid-70s. So while it doesn't have some of the traditional elements that you might find in a film noir or a neo-noir, like the 1920s and 30s time frame with the art deco designs, we still call it a neo-noir because film noir, literally translated, means dark movie, indicating something sinister happening beneath the surface. Neo-noir is that same concept, but with updated themes, both in content and in imagery. And the thing that I find with The Passenger is that it is so subtle. The entire movie is very subdued. The plot of The Passenger, I think, given the subject matter, could easily be made back then, or even today, as a big budget action crime movie. But that's not what we have here. It's actually quite the opposite. The Passenger is widely considered as an art film as it appeals to a very niche audience as opposed to a more mainstream audience. Now, that being said, I have to tell you about my first time seeing The Passenger. This was one of Jack's works that we rented from Blockbuster when I was around the age of 14, maybe 15, I had searched for this movie for a while because I remember it wasn't available to rent for quite some time, and I couldn't find any VHS copies on eBay or anywhere else on the internet either. But finally, one Saturday, my mom and I went on one of our blockbuster runs, and there it was. The passenger happened to be there. So we rented that one that day. And later that afternoon, I popped it in and I couldn't get into it. I know I say this a lot, but in this instance, I really do mean this more than ever before, that my adolescent brain was not equipped to appreciate all the nuances of a film like this. And I have a confession to make, I cut it off early. It's the only movie in Jack's entire filmography that I have done that with. So when I watched it again just a few months ago, I realized the level of my impatience as a young teen was just so astronomical. It's one thing to be a kid in need of stimulation, but I'm mildly embarrassed to say that I hadn't given the passenger a chance at all. Because I remembered the reason why I cut it off early was because no one was speaking. It was too quiet. So when I watched it again, I already knew in the back of my mind that I hadn't given it a chance and I wanted to see just how guilty I was. So when I started the movie, I started a stopwatch on my phone, thinking it would still be a while until there was some dialogue. But instead... I ended up saying to myself, Jesus Christ, Sarah, could you have waited five minutes? The thing is, you have to engage with this film. This is not one where you can just let it play in the background and you just dip in and out from it. And if you don't understand something because you missed an important detail because you weren't paying attention, well, that's on you. The Passenger stars Jack Nicholson as TV journalist David Locke, Maria Schneider as The Girl, Charles Mulvihill as Robertson, Ian Hendry as Martin Knight, and Jenny Runaker as Rachel Locke, David's wife. Directed by Michelangelo Antonioni, screenplay by Antonioni as well as Mark Peplow and Peter Wallen, and cinematography by Luciano Tovoli. One of the most widely praised elements of The Passenger. But for me personally, there was something else that I found even more interesting. Jack's co-star in this movie, French actress Maria Schneider, is known only as the girl. Neither we nor anyone else in the movie, it seems, including David Locke, ever learn her name. This jumps out at me because Maria Schneider is probably best known for a film in which she co-starred With Marlon Brando, just three years prior to the passenger's release, called Last Tango in Paris. Last Tango in Paris, if you're not familiar with it, was given an X rating when it was released, or what today would be an NC-17 rating. It's a story of an older American man, played by Brando, who's grieving as his wife has just recently committed suicide. So he goes and looks for a new apartment to rent in the city of Paris. Meanwhile, a girl of about 20 years old, played by Maria Schneider, is also looking for an apartment in the city to rent. So she and Brando's character first cross paths while they're both looking at this vacant apartment. And immediately, by which I mean in that first meeting, right there on that empty apartment floor, they begin a passionate physical affair. And they decide, or really it's Brando's character who decides, that they're going to keep this affair going. But they're only going to meet back there at that apartment, and they're never going to tell each other their names. They're not going to share anything about each other. They don't even have names as far as they're concerned. When it's the two of them in that apartment, nothing else exists. The rest of the world outside is dead. As you can imagine, especially in 1972, it faced a great deal of controversy at the time of its release. But just to let you know, it is so much more than just a sex movie. It is a very tragic story. So I would recommend Last Tango in Paris if you're cool with those types of movies. But I just found it to be such an interesting coincidence that there was a film where Maria Schneider played a character that was being purposely anonymous in this relationship. And then just a few years later, in her next notable work, she's playing another character who is totally anonymous. The passenger opens on a small village in northern Chad. No music, just a fade up from black. The only real discernible sound is the Land Rover, which David drives into the village. David, played by Jack, exits the vehicle. This particular shot is from far away, like the camera is set up towards the center of the village, and David, along with some locals who are standing nearby on the street, are off in the distance. Now, this is very faint, and it's easy to miss, but at this point, David approaches one of these locals, and we can just barely hear him say, tell me where, and then it trails off as the camera pans away from them and gives us a wider view of this village. With there being an obvious language barrier, this opening scene is almost entirely wordless. It really is, at this point, the cinematography that tells the story. You can almost feel that it's very hot, very dry, very sticky, David has his shirt open and his sunglasses on, and he's just kind of coated in sweat that is matted to his skin. He and these few people from the village are able to effectively communicate through hand gestures. One man mimes a cigarette to him, to which David responds by giving the man a cigarette. From there, they lead him over to a hut where he meets two more men. It's more of the same, no one says a word but he offers a cigarette to the man in there. After he comes out and goes back over to the Land Rover, he finds a young local boy sitting in the front seat. So David gets into the driver's seat and asks the boy, Do you speak English? To which the boy doesn't respond, just keeps looking straight ahead. But it becomes evident that this boy is there to direct David to whomever he's trying to find. They drive further into the Sahara Desert, where David meets up with a guide. So we're about a minute or two into the film at this point, and we're just now starting to catch glimpses of what is going on. It seems that David is looking for rebel fighters to talk to, this being during the Chadian Civil War. But it's noticeably a struggle to find anyone willing or able to talk to him. And this particular trek is no different. And this whole ordeal comes to a head as David already defeated gets back into the land rover and begins driving back towards the village as he's driving through the desert the vehicle becomes stuck in a sand dune so he gets out starts digging through the sand to free it but the side and the front end are so buried it's akin to shoveling during a snowstorm it just can't be done so david smacks his shovel up against the side of the vehicle, he drops to his knees, he throws his hands up in the air.
1: All right! I don't
0: care! So he walks all the way back through the desert, to that village and to his hotel, all the while lugging a bulky, heavy-looking bag on his shoulder. This hotel where David is staying has poor conditions, to say the least. Again, the heat and the stickiness is tangible. There are little roaches climbing up the side of the walls, just as a natural occurrence at that place. So when David gets inside, the first thing he does is ask for water. And when the man brings it to his room, David has turned on the shower, so he turns around and says to the man, there's no soap. And the man responds, no. And that was it. The hotel just doesn't have soap. And there is another guest staying at this hotel by the name of Robertson, played by Charles Mulvahill. David goes across the hall to Robertson's room and finds him unconscious on the bed. And I think David's first assumption is that he either passed out or is asleep. But as he gets closer to him, he notices that Robertson is dead. He's lying face down on the bed. So David rolls him over and we see that Robertson's eyes are still open, but lifeless. And David leans over to him, gets in really close, really takes a minute to examine his face and eyes. And in the next shot, David is going through Robertson's things, finds his passport, other documents, including a plane ticket, which has written on it, Munich, Box 58. And this is where I first noticed that the film does some interesting plays to show time passing. And an example is in this scene, the way the director utilized something as commonplace as a ceiling fan. David is standing up in the room, holding one of Robertson's shirts. He tilts his head up toward the fan, and the camera tilts up to show the fan. Camera tilts back down again, and David is now wearing Robertson's shirt. That's a minor example compared to what comes next. Just after that, David is back in his room, looking as though he just showered. He's shirtless, and his hair is wet and slicked back, He's sitting at the table in his room and he's working on something as we get closer we see that he's got both his and Robertson's passports and he's using this little knife like an exacto knife and he's removing each of their photos from the passports and he's switching them gluing them each onto the other passport and we hear a voiceover. It's the moment that David and Robertson first met. Come in.
2: Sorry to barge in like this. I, I saw your lights on, thought you might like a drink.
3: Oh yes, come in. Uh, I saw you on the plane. I'll get some glasses. My name's
2: Robertson, David Robertson. First time I've been in this part of Africa.
3: Do you know it well? No, I've never been up here before. I'm a reporter. My name's Locke. Not David Locke?
2: Yes. I've often read your pieces, I'm very glad to meet you. Are
3: you down here for a story? I'm putting some material together, pieces of film for a documentary on Africa. I'm finished now, thank God, or almost finished. Well, what more do you need? I'd like to make contact with the guerrillas. Everybody knows they're fighting up here now. They just arrested some foreigners. I suppose you heard about it. Yes. Anyway, I must have taken the wrong trail. <laughs> there aren't very many around here. <laughs> but you're not a journalist as well, are you? No, no, I'm here on business. Business? A godforsaken place like this. Well,
2: I've been in so many places the last few years, doesn't make any difference anymore.
0: So this is where we officially learn who David is, why he's in Chad, because he's a TV journalist for the BBC. And this scene is more than a voiceover. Using the same camera technique, it turns into a flashback. We have a shot of David at the table. The camera pans over to the open door on the balcony. Robertson steps into the frame, looking out at the view, and David comes over next to him, and they continue on with their conversation.
2: Beautiful, don't you think so?
3: Beautiful, I don't know. So still. Kind of waiting. You seem unusually poetic for a businessman. Do I?
2: Doesn't the desert have the same effect on you?
3: No. I prefer men to landscapes. There are men who live in the desert. Any family?
2: No, no family. No friends. Just a few commitments, including a bad heart. I really shouldn't be drinking. How about another one?
3: <laughs> Why not?
2: And now what? Oh, I'll continue on around the world, I expect. I'm a globetrotter. Take life as it comes. I suppose it's different for you, isn't it? Yeah, it's different. Still, you must have been around quite a bit yourself.
3: Yes, I suppose so.
2: How about (laughs) Umbabene? I bet you've never been to (laughs) Umbabene. No. Terrible place. airports, taxi, hotel, they're all the same in the end.
3: I don't agree. It's us who remain the same. We translate every situation, every experience into the same old codes. We just condition ourselves. We're creatures of habit. That's what you mean. Something like that. I mean, however hard you try, it stays so difficult to get away from your own habits. Even the way we talk to these people, the way we treat them, it's it's mistaken. <laughs> I mean, how do you get their confidence, do you know? Well, it's like this, Mr. Locke. You work with words,
2: images, fragile things. I come with merchandise, concrete things. They understand me straight away.
3: Yes, maybe. So where are you going to next? London, I think. Then
2: Munich, perhaps. No real reason, just thought I'd check up on some of the old places. I have
3: been in London for
0: three years now. And then even as we get back to the present moment with David sitting at the table with the altered passports, we find that this voiceover wasn't really a voiceover. David was listening to his recording of this conversation that whole time. So it is, I would say, sort of a disorienting perspective of time and place, but not in a bad way, though. It's kind of in an intriguing way, like it's just beginning to build that suspense for us, just to give us that slight feeling of unease. So after David switches the passport photos, he goes back over to Robertson's room. He looks back and forth in the hallway to make sure no one is around, and he drags Robertson's body across the hall into his, David's, room. And after that door closes, in the very next shot, we see David standing up in the room, Robertson laying flat on David's bed, and they are wearing each other's clothes. David has on what Robertson was just wearing, and Robertson is wearing the shirt and pants that David wore on that whole trek through the desert. And this did strike me as a particularly dark moment, because I feel like That's not an unusual thing to see on TV shows, especially characters switching clothes with other characters, but this feels incredibly different because here it feels real. Like actually think for a moment what that would be like. The act of taking the clothes off of a body, putting them on, than dressing that body in your own clothes and having to do it neatly enough so that it looks authentic. It's sinister, really. And it speaks to just how done somebody has to be with their career, their life, just everything they know to seize an opportunity to trade identities with a dead person, a dead person that they don't actually know anything about, mind you. So here's the thing with Rachel. She has been having an affair for how long, we don't know, but she feels guilty when she learns of her husband's death. So she goes to see Martin Knight, a producer at the BBC and a friend of David's, having been Only given a little bit of information that her husband has died and was found by this other guest, Robertson, she meets with Martin because she wants to get in touch with this guy, Robertson, to try to find out more about David's last days. Well, meanwhile, David, or Robertson, quotations, has kept the real Robertson's appointment book and not knowing where it will lead him, he decides to keep up with these appointments. He flies to Munich, and remember we have that ticket with Munich Box 58 written on it. As he arrives at the airport, he doesn't notice this, but he's being watched by two men. He goes over to Box 58, and when he gets it open, he finds a leather bag, pulls it out, there's a stack of papers inside, all with pictures of high artillery guns. So keeping with Robertson's appointment book, he continues on to a chapel where a wedding is taking place. After the ceremony ends, the bride and groom exit, followed by all the guests, David sits alone at one of the pews inside the chapel. At this point, the two men who were watching him at the airport enter the chapel, addressing him as Robertson. Now it takes him a second to remember that he's Robertson now, but he turns around and goes along with it as it were. The men ask him if something went wrong at the airport, because evidently Robertson was supposed to meet them there. And here is where David realizes exactly what kind of business the real Robertson was a part of. The two men ask him for the documents that he collected from the locker, and upon receiving them, they hand him an envelope filled with money. The second half of this payment will be given to him in Barcelona. After the men leave, you can see the subtle realization come over David that Robertson was a gun runner and he was providing arms to the very rebels that David had been trying to reach in the desert for his documentary. Now, just after this, there's another little shift with time because we're brought to a flashback of David at his home back in London, and he's building this huge fire in his and Rachel's backyard and mind you this is a tiny little backyard just a rectangular area of grass fenced in the houses in the neighborhood are very close together Rachel comes out to the side of the house in exasperation covering herself in a robe shouts over to David asking him what he's doing meanwhile David is proud of his creation he's laughing grinning ear to ear in a way that only Jack can do, of course. He's getting rid of everything. Rachel turns on her heels, storms back into the house. David notices this and half-heartedly calls after her. After we leave this flashback, we cut back to Rachel in the present, admitting to the producers at the BBC that she and David hadn't been close for a few years. When asked if she still loved him, She says, yes, I suppose. We go to another flashback of the one time that Rachel accompanied David on one of his shoots while making this documentary. She didn't like that he was so lenient during his interviews, even when his subjects were lying straight to his face. And noticeably here, there is even more building tension between the two of them. I almost want to say she looks at him not with anger or annoyance, but it just seemed like disgust, really. In the meantime, Robertson's planner says Barcelona. So David, although he's under no obligation, decides to keep this next appointment. He books a ticket onward to Barcelona. Now, unbeknownst to David... His producer, Martin, has tracked down where Robertson, air quotes, has booked his next flight to. So Martin also makes a trip out to Barcelona, staying at the same hotel as him. So when David sees Martin on the street there, he quickly ducks down and looks for a place, building, anything to slip into so as to not be seen. He goes inside this dimly lit large, very old space with stunning architecture on the interior. And we find out in a moment that the space is used for classical concerts. In here, David sees the girl, played by Maria Schneider. Now, I should tell you, this is not the first time that David has seen her. He first saw the girl when he arrived back in London. He saw her out on a park bench reading. So now, Upon seeing her again in a totally different country, he approaches her. Listen to their conversation, because my feeling was that it was almost as if they weren't really talking to each other, more like they were talking at each other. It's a bizarre conversation, kind of surreal.
1: Excuse me. I was trying to remember something. Is it important? No.
3: What is it, do you know? I came in by accident.
1: The man who built it was hit by a bus. Who was he? Gaudi. Come. You built this house for a Corduroy manufacturer. use this room for concerts Wagner
3: do you think he was crazy
1: how could you come in here by accident
3: I was escaping
1: oh from
3: what well I thought someone might be following me somebody who might recognize me why I don't know
1: well, I can't recognize you. Who are you?
3: I used to be somebody
1: else, but
3: uh, I traded him in. Uh, what about you?
1: Well, I'm in Barcelona. Um, I'm talking to someone who might be someone else. I was with those people, but I think I'm going to see the other Gaudi buildings alone all of them they're all good for hiding in depends on how much time you've got
3: i have to leave today this afternoon
1: i hope you make it people disappear every day
3: every time they leave the room
1: goodbye
0: all the while that they're talking the girl is leading him all through the halls showing him the different spaces Her accent is very thick, but you likely just heard her say how the space is used as a concert hall for Wagner. But although this scene is an unexpected break in the story that we've been following, I feel like you can see that there's an intrigue here. Like simply by sitting and reading, she managed to catch his attention on two separate occasions. Before he can continue onward, He needs to get his luggage from the hotel. This poses a problem, as Martin is staying at that same hotel. So he goes and finds the girl again, not knowing anyone else in Barcelona. And he asks her to retrieve his things from the hotel. She agrees, smiling, becoming more intrigued by him as well, I think. The two of them become lovers. He opens up a little more about why he took Robertson's identity. But he does this without revealing who he used to be, who David Locke is, or was. But David has a problem much bigger than trying to evade his wife and his producer who think he's dead. He still has this down payment on arms for rebel fighters in Chat, something which he cannot deliver. And in spite of all this, He is still keeping each of this man's appointments. So while David was looking for a chance at a new life, it seems that he kind of lost sight of the danger that this new identity would bring. Or it could be that he didn't so much lose sight of that as much as he realized what was ahead and saw no other option but to continue on with it like he's in over his head, and there was no way out of it the moment that he accepted that first envelope of cash. And even if there was, what would he be going back to? And all of this culminates in the second-to-last scene. While dodging these other gunrunners, David and the girl meet back up again at a tiny hotel in the town of Osuna, Spain. David arrives at the hotel finds that the girl has already booked them a double room having identified herself to the front desk as Mrs. Robertson. David enters the room and finds her gazing out the window and the conversation that ensues is very similar in tone and in substance as the one they had when they first met.
3: You shouldn't have come. see now?
1: A man scratching his shoulder, a kid throwing stones, and dust. It's very dusty here. Isn't it funny how things happen? All the shapes we make, Wouldn't it wouldn't be terrible to be blind.
3: I know a man who was blind. When he was nearly 40 years old, he had an operation and regained his sight.
1: How was it like?
3: At first, he was elated, really high. Faces, colors, landscapes. But then everything began to change. The world was much poorer than he imagined. No one had ever told him how much dirt there was, how much ugliness. He noticed ugliness everywhere. When he was blind, he used to cross the street alone with a stick. After he regained his sight, he became afraid. He began to live in darkness. He never left his room. After three years, he killed himself.
0: You can tell, though, with that scene, there was a feeling of defeat, especially in David's telling of the story about the blind man. There's a somberness to the ending, but I would say it's not particularly surprising. I've read in a few different articles over the years that The Passenger was Jack's favorite film out of all the projects he's done. And I think I can see why, because like I mentioned, This is an art film, so I think it would appeal most to the people who are lovers of visual art, for those who like to take in and interpret the way you would with a painting. And I realize this now, that I should give my 13-year-old self a break for not being able to get into it when I first rented it back then. Because even now, as an adult watching it, it takes commitment. You have to engage with the story without the aid of a high energy musical score or big bloody shootout or any of those tropes, because you won't find that here. And also it was a departure for Jack because he was such a bankable star by that time, having just been in Chinatown, The Last Detail and Five Easy Pieces just a few years before. It's really not like anything else he's ever done. And these things don't happen by accident. This was a conscious decision for Jack to take this role. Because another thing that I have read on multiple occasions is that Jack was a longtime fan of Michelangelo Antonioni's work. So you can imagine just how important properly executing this film would have been to him. I have not been able to find The Passenger streaming on demand anywhere. However, I was able to find it on DVD and Blu-ray on Amazon. So it's a little harder to find, but not impossible. So I strongly suggest you get yourself a copy of The Passenger. Don't just pop it in and let it play in the background. Give it your full attention as it deserves. And I think you'll start to understand the tragedy of these characters. So, like I said, friends, I'm back again. I will be back next week. I won't keep you waiting another month for a new episode. And I will be reviewing a movie that I love, another title, yet again, totally different from the last, and that is the 1975 comedy, The Fortune co-starring Warren Beatty and Stockard Channing. I'm excited about this one. I love it. And I can't wait for you to join me. Please subscribe to You Don't Know Jack anywhere you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review. Please join us on social media. That's You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group, Visit clovercrestmedia.com and discover over 30 more great original podcasts. Sports, true crime, politics, health and wellness, current events. It's all there at the click of a button. So until next week, guys, I'm Sarah Demio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.